0: Welcome to the Wellbeing A Career World podcast. I'm delighted to be chatting with author of the Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. From tracking criminals and terrorists on the dark web, to creating marketplaces and new authentication systems, Marcus spent his career launching and developing new ventures at startups and Fortune 500s and in academia. He helped to start the undergraduate practice opportunities program, dubbed MIT's Career Success Accelerator, where he teaches annually. At MIT, he received a Bachelor of Science in Physics, a Bachelor of Science in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, and a Master's Engineering in Electrical Engineering and Computer Science, focusing on cryptography. At Harvard Business School, Mark helped create a platform used to teach finance at prominent business schools. He also works with many non-profits, including Techieute and The Plant A Million Corals. He was one of the top-ranked ballroom dancers in the country, and now lives in New York City, where he is known for his social gatherings, including his annual Halloween party, as well as his diverse Cuffling collection. Our podcast today will focus on interview techniques and how to put your best self out there during an interview. And a very warm welcome to the podcast, Mark Hershberg. A very good, I think it's evening where I am Mark in Ireland, and I think it's morning where you are in the
1: US of A. How are you getting on today? I'm doing terrific. Thanks for having me on the show.
0: No, my pleasure. So let's get this started. So where are you right now on planet Earth and what is the weather like?
1: I'm in New York City where we are having wonderful weather. Finally, not too hot, not too cold. I'm going to enjoy it as long as I can.
0: Oh, very, very nice. So are things getting a little bit back to normal now in New York? Is uh, things opening up?
1: Yes. When we're recording this in mid-June, things are mostly back to normal. We're starting to have events are open. They just had the first fully capacity full capacity concert so it's feeling fairly normal i don't think it will ever quite be perfect back to pre-covid but that's fine we're going to keep adjusting
0: well okay well i gave a brief introduction about your background so can you tell the listeners a little bit more about yourself
1: i began my career as a software developer when i graduated from mit in the late 90s during the dot-com era i realized what i wanted to do was become a cto a chief technology officer But in order to be qualified for this job, there were a whole bunch of skills I needed that I never learned. It wasn't just about being a good software engineer or a good technologist. I also needed skills like leadership, communication, negotiation, team building, developing a strong network. And no one had ever taught me any of these skills. I began to develop them in myself. I found resources to help me in this journey. And I realized these skills are not just for leaders, they're not just for people with senior titles, they really help everyone. Because I couldn't find other people had these skills, they also were never taught them, I had to develop them in my team. So I put together training programs. Shortly after that happened, MIT had gotten feedback saying, these are the skills we want to see in people, this came from corporate America, these are the skills we want to see, but we're just not finding. And this is not unique to MIT. Similar feedback has been given to universities across the country and applies not just for new grads, but people at all levels. Leadership, communication, negotiation, they can't find people with these skills. So MIT wanted to put together a program to help develop it in our students. When I heard of this, I said, well, I've been working on this with my staff. Can I be of help? I said, yes, please. So I helped develop the early version of the class. And MIT asked me to come teach, which I've been doing for the past 20 years. So I've had these parallel careers. One is building startup companies and I've built small ones and large ones. I've even helped fortune 500 companies who wanted to play startup and launch new divisions. But I've also been teaching at MIT and elsewhere for the past 20 years.
0: So what's it like then at MIT? From my point of view, MIT is where all the clever brainy people go to go into NASA, the space program, all the best mathematicians.
1: Is 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 it quite difficult to get in there? MIT is just this fantastic place I was really lucky to have been a part of and still be a part of. Yes, we have, of course, world-class nerds. We're all very (laughs) proud of that. And you do have access to nuclear reactors and chemistry labs and all sorts of great science and engineering. What most people don't know, MIT is also incredibly diverse in our experiences. We have one of the largest sports programs in the country, and we actually have fantastic sports teams. Uh, Bowling, I know, won the national championships when I was there. I was on the ballroom dance team. We've produced a number of national champions. We've had a good pistol team. We have a very strong theater community all different types, both general theater, as well as a Gilbert and Sullivan society, the Shakespeare society, lots of a cappella groups. So we have a really diverse set of culture that goes beyond just what you think of as the core STEM classes. Yeah. We have a number of things, academic and personal that go on throughout the community.
0: So you mentioned there ballroom dancing. So how good did you at ballroom dancing? And when did this passion for ballroom dancing start? Is this a way for you to relieve a bit of stress?
1: It was a fun hobby I stumbled into. I had been set up with a girl from Wellesley during my senior year, and we had a a good date when I took her to a (laughs) semi-formal dinner at my fraternity. So I thought, okay, I want to find date activities for us. And one of the great things at MIT is during January, that's our intersession period. You don't have to come back, but if you do, there's literally a 1,000 activities that go on. You can learn special relativity, or you can learn origami. You can go skiing, you can learn ballroom dancing, you can learn pipe fitting, you can learn scuba diving or how to build an electric car, all sorts of random interesting activities. Ballroom dancing is one of the more popular ones. So I thought, okay, this will be a fun activity for us to do. And we started taking the ballroom classes. She and I only dated for a few weeks, but that was enough to get me into ballroom. Shortly after that, I started dating another girl And she had a dance background, I got her to start doing ballroom with me. She then decided she wanted to join the ballroom dance team, which apparently meant I decided I wanted to join the ballroom dance team. (laughs) And so we, we started competing because it's not an NCAA sport, that's the Athletic Association for Colleges, there weren't mandates saying you have to be a student to do it. So the MIT team was open not only to students, undergrad and graduate, but faculty, staff, alumni. So I was able to keep doing it throughout my 20s. And it was just a wonderful community of people, great athletic sport, lots of fun. I traveled all over the world. Uh, so all over the country, I went to, uh, to England as well. And it was just a fantastic experience.
0: So how tough is it there? I know you, you, you gave an overview of the diversity of MIT. How, how tough is it, say for a listener here who has a passion to get into MIT, especially for foreign students? um, Do they need a high SAT score? What specifically is a college looking for?
1: MIT, I hear, gets tougher every year. And part of that is because when I applied in the 90s, we had some international students but wasn't as common. Certainly these days, as the world has shrunk, we have more and more international students applying, and therefore the competition gets harder and harder it is certainly a difficult school to get into. Now, they also talk about how hard it is to stay in. And MIT overwhelms you with work. There is a lot of it. My friends who went to other Ivy League schools, they would say, oh, yeah, the weekend began Wednesday. And that's when happy hour starts. (laughs) Like Wednesday, (laughs) the weekend begins, you know, maybe 11 on Friday when you get out of the library. But one thing, it took me years to recognize this at MIT. If you show up, do the reading, pay attention in class, do the homework, get help when you need it. It's easy to pass. Doesn't guarantee you an A. You're going to have to work very hard for that, but you're not going to fail. So even when you're in MIT, it's doable and there's a lot of support and resources to help you.
0: So let's move on then to our main topic today during this podcast. Is there ever a perfect interview? I mean, when Say somebody like myself attends an interview and I'm sitting there in front of a panel or one or two interviewers and I kind of walk away and I think, well, that kind of went well and I don't get the job. Or sometimes I feel, oh, it didn't go too well and I do get the job. Is there ever a perfect interview
1: or is it just up to luck? There certainly can be. When you think about what you're trying to do in the interview, you need to sell yourself as the most qualified person for the job. And there are a number of factors in that. Some might be what your prior experience is. Others might be your knowledge, your ability to use certain tools or understanding of the industry. And then what unfortunately people don't focus enough on, but subconsciously they do take this into account is how well you fit in, your personality with that of the interviewers and team, how you fit into the culture. Are you the right type of person? Do you like to joke around? And if that's something that's important on their team, you're going to fit in well. If, however, you're the person who likes to joke around and the team is very straight-laced and they're all just about business, you're not going to be a good fit. And that's something they should be looking for, Unfortunately, they don't consciously, but subconsciously they still might recognize that. And so when you hit on all those cylinders, you're going to have a fantastic interview. But remember, you noted, sometimes you think it went one way, but then it went the other. These are not objective evaluations. There's not a simple bar. Certainly they do expect you to have some minimum qualifications or you're not gonna qualify for the job. But even then you are being compared to all the other candidates. So even if you are completely qualified for the job and you line up so well and you would be a great candidate, if there's someone who would be an even better candidate, there's nothing you can do about that. So recognize that no matter how you feel, there's gonna be parts of it just outside your control and that's the other candidates.
0: Does the stages of an interview begin when you press submit with your CV or an application online? And then after that, then you progress to arrive at the interview, the way you're dressed, how you present yourself. I mean, are all these factors taken into account or is it just mainly the interview stage when you're with the panel?
1: All of that is taken into account. And I would argue your interview actually began long before you submitted your resume. We all have reputations. We all are perceived a certain way. Some people it might be very public they might have a public persona from speaking at conferences or writing articles or just being known in the industry. For others, it might just be personal relationships. We all know about getting into jobs through networking. Someone recommends you. When someone in my company walks a resume over to my desk and says, this is my friend Alice. I think you should look at her for the job. She instantly moves to the top of the pile. And Assuming her resume is even basically qualified, she will get an interview because this person has vouched for her. He said she is smart or capable or would be a good fit, or I know she's a hard worker. Something that says, okay, there is information that I can't otherwise get off of resumes, and that is a strong signal. One thing I knew it in my book, when I teach my students, I am technically interviewing Right now, at this point, they are students, or undergrads at MIT, they're not certainly hiring anyone, and here I am with much more experience, but they're getting an impression of me. And years from now, they might be at a company, or they might know someone looking for someone with my skills, and they're going to say, that Mark, he was really smart, he communicated well, he was great to engage with, you should speak with Mark. I'm also interviewing all of them, because years from now, I might be hiring. And I might be thinking, oh, that student of mine, she really stood out. And so I'm going to give her a call and see if she's available for the job. So all of us are always interviewing. We're always conveying who we are. Now, don't get paranoid. Don't think, oh, my God, I'm walking on eggshells because people who you are engaging with on a regular basis your coworkers your friends it doesn't matter if you say something stupid once we all do <laughs> you have enough of an impression of you but when you're up on stage at a conference when you're at some event and meeting people you are doing that early part of the interview you're starting to convey an impression of yourself and that's important as the first step in the jobs then certainly to your point when we show up at the interview It's not just your answers, we are looking. Did you dress appropriately? Do you understand the type of company we are and and match it? I always used to ask my receptionist, how was the candidate? Because some of them were rude to her. Okay, that's a strong signal. And I wanna know that. Some were very polite and respectful and nice to her. That's a signal as well. When I interview people, not only am I looking at their answers, I'm looking at how they answer. Not only what they said, but how they said it. That includes language choice, sentence structure, how they present the answer. That's telling me something about how they think. And that's part of my interview process.
0: How then, Mark, let's get the, the bad stuff out of the way. How can a employee get over the hurdle of kind of falling out with the previous boss or management? And they may have a black mark against them when they're going for future jobs especially when they're looking for references. Is there any way to get around that and avoid it? Or how can you recover from that?
1: You can. Now, assuming that somehow your new boss or potential new boss is going to reach out and hear from your old boss and hear that black mark, if you know what's going to happen, you know why you didn't get along with that boss, you know what that boss is going to say, you can proactively alter the story. If your boss is going to say, he didn't work very hard, Then during the interview process, you want to tell stories about how you worked hard. You want to emphasize that. You want to give, and not just say I'm a hard worker. You want to show on this project, we had to do a lot of late nights. And I was working for two months straight every Monday, Wednesday, and Thursday. I'd typically be in the office till 10 p.m., but we hit our deadline. And so you're going to start to give one impression. So when your boss's, your former boss's information comes in, it's mitigated by what they're hearing. You also want to make sure the other references that you have, whether formal ones that you're giving your potential new boss or just other ones in your boss's network can reach out and tell a different story. Because if I'm trying to hire someone, I hear examples that he's worked hard and two of the references give me examples and say, yes, hard worker, and one says otherwise, might think, okay, this this may not be right? This might not be the true story. This might be someone who just has a very different perspective and they weren't a fit.
0: Okay. Then let's get some techniques then. So have you any techniques for when you walk into that interview to keep yourself calm, composed, to be able to answer questions in a orderly fashion without all this M, M, O, M. Is that okay? Is it okay to say M's or are you better off saying nothing at all until you have the answer set out in your head?
1: It can be okay to use some. Right. I'm a practiced public speaker, and I've worked very hard to remove them. Now, my friend Valerie Friedland, she's head of the English department at University of Nevada, Reno, and she's got an upcoming book on discourse markers, ums and ahs, as well as terms like like and you know. These are common in the English language, and all languages have some form of them. It turns out when you... Um, Pause like that, it actually increases the retention rate of the listener. So in fact, a little bit of ums and ahs will help the retention and can help. If um you know every um other uh, word is kind of um yeah pause yeah that sounds very very different. <laughs> so I prefer silence, but it's okay if some of those slip in. Don't overthink it. Don't worry about it. But I always remind people, interviews are a form of public speaking. You might not be standing, you might have an audience of one, your speech, your monologue might only be 60 seconds in duration, but it's really the same things that we do with public speaking. You want to make eye contact, you want to vary your tone, you want to avoid too many ums and uhs, and so apply what you've done with public speaking.
0: Is it okay then, Mark, to skip a question? If you're feeling a little bit under pressure, you don't know the answer, especially if it's a technical question, brain teaser. Is it okay to kind of say, kind of come back to that later on? Or does that look a bit unprofessional?
1: Certainly if you say come back to it, but I think it depends what the question is and how. So this is a very big, it depends category. If the question is, how would you solve this technical problem or what's the tool that you'd use for this? And you say, oh, you know, there's a tool and I'm just, I'm blanking on the name. I just can't think of it. Can we come back to that? We've all been in that situation where the name is right in front of you and you just can't recall it. And that's just a recall issue, right? That's just information and knowledge. If it's struggling to solve a deeper technical question, how would you design this? How would you come up with a plan to do that? It's better if you can try to solve that if you want to come back to and say, you know, I do better if I just put aside, let's do a few more questions and circle back to that, that will let my brain subconsciously focus on it, and then I can address it. The interviewer might say, okay, that's unusual, but, but sure, I just want to see if you can do it. Because realistically, in our office jobs, no one's saying, come up with a plan now, right now, no time to think, <laughs> quickly, you got two minutes to do it. You need time to think about, it? that's fine. But you, you mentioned brain teasers and, and this. There is a very common mistake I see people make, which is when you get a brain teaser or when you get a problem, how would you come up with a plan for this? How would you roll out a new initiative? They say, okay, let me think about that. And you sit there for a minute or two in silence. So let's take the brain teaser case. You sit there for a minute or two in silence, which first can feel awkward to potentially the candidate and or interviewer. And then at the end, the candidate says, 42. Now, maybe 42 is the right answer, maybe not. But it doesn't really help the interviewer evaluate the candidate. Because at this point, maybe the candidate did the right analysis and got the right answer, maybe. Maybe the candidate secretly knew how to do this, you know, read the answer online and just remembered that. Maybe the candidate got lucky when you have this problem, you want to think through it. So what I do as a candidate, what I tell other people to do as a candidate is say, okay, here's the problem. You asked me to do this. So, you know, the way I'd first approach it is I might think I'm going to try this. I'm going to do this type of analysis. I think this is the important information. This not so much. I'm going to try it. And then from here, here's what we can figure out. You know what this, I don't No, this isn't quite working. Okay, so let me back up. Let me go back to those assumptions. What if we did this? And you want to really show that line of thinking. And it's okay if you don't instantly have the right answer. What we're really judging you on, what we should be judging you on, unfortunately not everyone does, is how you think. I am less concerned with whether or not you get the right answer than if you are approaching it correctly. The analogy I'd use, if you remember in college when you took a calculus class. And you'd have some problem and on the test you had to go find the derivative. If along the way you made a sign error, you added one instead of subtracting one because under the pressure of the test oops wrong thing, your final answer is technically wrong but the professor is going to look and say yep you just made a a small math error, you lose one point on the problem but you did the right thing and that's the same thing you want to do here. You want to show your thinking, show your process. If you make a small mistake along the way we'll understand You add instead of subtracted. You forgot to take this one thing into account, but you're thinking about the right way. And under a normal, less pressured circumstance, we know you can get it right.
0: There's some great, great tips um, and strategies, Mark. What about this one? You hear it a lot. I'm sure you hear it a lot as well. The, The question, like when the interviewer will say, can you tell me your strengths and weaknesses? And we can say probably a lot of positive things about our strengths, But the weakness one is a little bit tricky and you don't want to come across as opposed to saying, well, one of my weaknesses, I kind of, you know, I'm kind of aggressive sometimes and, you know, I shout a lot or I'm angry at times, or another question might be a time, tell me a time when you have failed. So how do you manage these questions? So can we start off with the strengths and weakness one first? How do you manage those questions to answer them?
1: Let's start with weaknesses because you do answer them in slightly different ways in weaknesses, it's okay to admit that you have a weakness. We all have them. And any candidate who says, well, I I don't have any weaknesses, that's already a red flag because it says you're not (laughs) self-aware. So it's okay to admit a weakness. Now, choose an appropriate weakness. You don't want to say, oh, well, I happen to be an alcoholic or I never really show up for work on time. Okay. Those might be less than ideal, but a weakness might be sometimes I don't, send off emails to keep my team as in the loop as I should, or a weakness might be, I should come up with a project plan and really think through it more before just jumping into a project that might be a week or two. So you can admit there's a weakness. Then what you want to do, after you've acknowledged the weakness, you want to be explicit on your plan for how you are overcoming that weakness. Because if you just say, well, here's a weakness, Okay, well, thanks for letting me know. Hopefully that's not too important. But when you say, this is my weakness, I am aware, and here are the steps I am taking to proactively address it. That might be, I am taking this class. I have developed a daily mantra or habit. So if, for example, you say, I don't always email my team or keep them in the loop on my progress, but what I've done lately is I actually have a calendar reminder every day at five o'clock before I leave, it's just a little reminder, anything I should alert the team to. And so this gives me that little kick to like run through, okay, what I do today, do I have to let anyone know? It's not perfect, but I've been better about keeping the team informed. So when you show you're taking proactive steps, it says, okay, you have a weakness, we all do, but you are improving. And that's the type of person that I want.
0: And what about the example, if you're asked by an interviewer, give an example of tell me a time when you have failed. Is that a similar way that you kind of, you turn a failure into a positive?
1: It is because you're going to admit that you failed. And again, we have all failed. If you haven't, then, okay, something's wrong. And this might be another example where say, you know, I I know I have lots of failures. Like I'm blanking on it right now. Can we just come back to this one? Because I do have answers. I just can't (laughs) think of it. That's fine. So same thing, you describe the failure, you describe what you learned from the failure, and then steps that you've taken to not repeat it. And again, it shows personal growth, which is a positive signal during interviews.
0: Is an interview a game in general? Or you know, are we playing pretend? So we're trying to get our kind of best self out there. So when you have good cop, bad cop interviewers, how then do you handle that situation? Because sometimes with a good cop, We have a habit of telling them all of our life and our world and what we did. And that could come across at the end of the day, maybe not getting the job. So how do you handle that?
1: Good cop, bad cop, you are there to convey information and show them who you are. You should avoid changing that based on who they are and how they interact. You may want to match their style a little bit. Perhaps one of them prefers shorter answers, more to the point then adjust your style that way. With the other person, maybe it's different types of answers or you wanna emphasize different points, but still you don't wanna say, oh, this is a good person. Let me overshare and this is the bad person. So I'm gonna take this aggressive antagonistic view. Don't fall into that trap. Just say, I am here to project the following. For this job, here's how I wanna be perceived. And I wanna be perceived that way by everyone. Now, I also wanna circle back. We talked about strength questions. Yes. This is one many people get wrong as well. When they are asked, what are their strengths? They simply say, well, it's A, B, C. Okay, great. You claim to be strong in this. Lots of people probably claim to be strong in those things. I'm a hard worker. I'm a fast learner. I hear that from everyone. Well, if everyone says this, how do you stand out? And the key to answering this question is to show, not tell you don't just say, well, I can tell you I am a hard worker. Okay. That's what everyone else is telling me. When (laughs) I give that answer, say, or a fast learner actually is the one I usually use. I am a very fast learner. When I was engaged in the project at Harvard Business School, I had zero finance or econ training prior to that job. I had never even taken a single class or read a single book, but the professor's knew that I could pick it up, and they knew I had the other skills they needed. So they gave me a whole bunch of finance books. I had half a dozen finance books to read. And over two weeks, I'd go home at night, I'd read through those books, I'd come in the next day, we had basically a tutoring session, I would ask some questions about the project, about how finance worked, and they'd walk me through it. And after two weeks, I was ready to go on the project. And now I am quite knowledgeable about finance, about how markets work, I understand market theory, market construction, more so than many of their students who just get basic finance. So I am a fast learner, as I've shown you in this example at Harvard Business School, and I can provide other stories. So don't just say I am X, give a specific story that demonstrates how X is true.
0: Right. That's good, That's good advice. I mean, I, I, probably, I found I trap myself many a time where you just kind of give, as you said yourself, you know, I'm a good learner or a fast learner. I pick up things quickly and then you just kind of, the, the conversation's over. <laughs> it's, it's, as you mentioned, it's better to expand on the, uh, on the answer. What about then body language, especially when it comes to different cultures, Mark? You might have certain cultures that use their hands a lot, facial expressions. How do you manage that in an interview? Do you put your hands in your lap? Do you not smile? You know, especially if you're sweating. How, how, how's the best way to manage that?
1: It depends a lot on what you're trying to convey, and that goes to the person across the table and the culture. Imagine, for example, that you are sitting at some military promotion board. I know most listeners probably aren't in the military, but you can (laughs) this. You've got the military promotion board. What is the way you would sit as you have senior officers sitting before you, a row of them, and they're gonna be asking you questions. Are you gonna be relaxed and casual? Are you going to be smiling and joking around, or are you going to sit at attention, hands in your lap and at the side, and answer very directly? Now imagine you are interviewing for a senior social worker job. A social worker is a very emotional job. You need to connect with people on an emotional level and showing how you do that is part of what they're evaluating you on. For that job, would you sit at attention with your hands on your lap and not convey much body language or emotion? You'd wanna do something very different in that interview because you want to convey something different. So depending on what you want to convey in terms of leadership, in terms of likability, in terms of how you're perceived, you wanna be conscious of this before going into the interview and then adjust to do it. Now, you had asked earlier, about how you can stay calm during the interview process. There's a great technique from my friend Olivia Fox Caban. She wrote a wonderful book called The Charisma Myth. And it turns out you can learn to be charismatic, just like you can learn to play football, you can learn to do accounting. Charisma is a learnable skill. One of the techniques she mentions is running the movie script. If you've ever been to a horror movie, You've sat there, you've watched the killer come at you with the big chainsaw and your heart starts to race, right? So, okay, chainsaw, <laughs> death, your body kicks in, fight or flight. Now, consciously, you know, you are not at risk. Say, so, yep, I know it's just a film, two-dimensional, can't hurt me. But subconsciously, your body says, bad guy, risk, run, right? You were designed to do that because yeah. if you weren't designed to do, it, if your ancestors weren't good at Well, they got killed by the chainsaw massacre, so you wouldn't be around. (laughs) So we've all been designed to respond this way. We can trick ourselves. If right now you close your eyes and start to visualize all these axe murderers and chainsaw wielding maniacs coming at you, your heart rate would start to increase. Likewise, you can do the opposite. Before I go into an interview, and this also works, by the way, for networking events For dates, anytime you want to convey warmth and relaxation, I envision a happy memory. For some people, that might be sitting in an open field. For me, it's thinking of my cat from childhood. And imagine having her there, petting her, might be embracing a loved one. Whatever makes you relaxed and happy, run that movie script in your head for 30 or 60 seconds before you go into the interview or before you go on stage and that's gonna put you in this relaxed state. Now you can choose alternatives. If instead of saying, okay, just wanna be relaxed, if I need to be that prim proper military officer, what am I gonna do? The script in my head is, okay, I am now a military officer. I'm about to walk into this military promotions board. How do I wanna think? How do I wanna convey myself? I put myself in that mentality. I imagine myself as an actor playing this role and that's going to adjust how I walk in. Or if I need the emotion, I'm going to imagine being that social worker or being a social worker, maybe not in the interview, but in front of a room full of children who need help. That's going to put me in that emotional state. So we can use this technique to change our emotional state to get us to convey what we want in that interview process.
0: You described there, Mark, with regards to the movie script. So practice practicing interviewing, then? I mean, do you go a step further then by like, you know, you sit in front of a mirror, you kind of look at what you're doing, how your body language is, how your facial expressions are, do you record yourself, or is it best to get professional help at all times, so you can actually crease out or get rid of all the bad habits?
1: You can do either one. I mentioned earlier, interviews are a form of public speaking. Now, no one would ever think, oh, I have to do a public speech. I'm going to speak for 15 minutes of this event. Okay, I'm just going to go and wing it. You're going to start to prepare. And probably at some point, you're going to do a read through, a practice run. Some people like to do that in front of a mirror. Some people like to record themselves. Some people like to go and have someone else watch and give feedback. All of these are valid techniques. The same thing is true for interviewing, and yet we don't do it. A few people did mock interviews when they were in college because the career service office happened to provide that service, but we can do this throughout our careers. Practice in front of the mirror, record yourself. We all have cameras on our laptops these days, or get a friend and practice, look at how you're doing, reflect and improve just like in public speaking, and that's going to make you a stronger interviewee.
0: To stand out then on social media platforms? Because now you've, you, know, you have your Facebook, you have your LinkedIn. How would you suggest somebody sets up their social media profile to make them stand out from the crowd? Because you see a lot of stuff now where if a candidate possibly is saying like, you know my cat had kittens or my dog had puppies and everybody likes it and loves it. I mean, do companies really care about this type of stuff or should you just kind of focus on yourself?
1: I think most don't, but it's going to depend on the company and the role. If for example, you're an accountant, no one really cares if you're posting about puppies, your barbecue, if you're not really (laughs) posting anything. If you're in marketing, particularly if you're going to be in social media marketing, or it's a company that uses social media or is very consumer focused or tied into influencers and trends, they're going to want to know you can walk the walk, you show how you are tied in, you understand social media marketing, even if you're not the social media marketing manager. So your profile better connect that way. Now it could still be, maybe you are a kitten fanatic and all (laughs) your posts are about kittens, but then you want to show, I have videos of kittens, I have clips of kittens, I have branding that goes with, I am the kitten lady, whatever, whatever happens to be that image. And you show, well, in this space, it might be about kittens and not electronics for teenagers, which is what the company's about, but I understand how to market it, how to brand it, how to get content, how to tag other people in it so I can increase my reach. So it does matter for that one. I would recommend certainly your LinkedIn profile, That is, for most people, that is important. That is who you are and that should convey you professionally. You may or may not care about having LinkedIn posts and trying to build up your brand with posting. You might just have a profile or you might have lots of posts as well. And in such a case, it might be okay if your Twitter or Instagram or Facebook might be more personal, has nothing to do with your accounting or your sales or whatever your main job is. Likewise, you might even want to keep that private, just to friends or friends of friends. So it's not as visible, but certainly your LinkedIn should align to the image you're conveying for this job.
0: Has it been in the past or are you aware, I don't know if this is true or not, but there is rumors going around that companies prior to employing you will monitor your Facebook profile or your social media activity to make a final decision whether you're suitable to join them or not? or is that just total nonsense?
1: I am sure some companies do it. I suspect certainly smaller businesses, they don't have the resources to do it. (laughs) They're they're too busy with other things, even mid-sized companies. Large companies probably only do it in more regulated industries. Certainly if you're working, for example, in finance, they do need to watch you because if you start tweeting, hey, you just looked at an awesome stock today, all of a sudden there could be legal implications. you talking about that. So I know some bigger companies, some regulated industries, they do watch that, but it should be very clear. You should know you're in a regulated industry and what you can and can't do and, and be careful about it. I wouldn't overthink this too much. I think for the vast majority of people out there, don't put on something extreme. Try not to put a shirt with offensive words or images on it. And when I say offensive, I mean sexual acts, swear words, you know, something that's just very obviously not suitable for work. Or if you do, make sure it's just set to friends only so they can't see it.
0: What about the opposite side then, Mark? Say you have no social media presence whatsoever. Is that a problem for employers?
1: It could be. And I personally had very limited social media. I had my LinkedIn profile, but no real posts. I had Facebook that was basically just for my friends and So that for friends of friends, I didn't have a larger presence. When I became an author, okay, I needed to go be more active. And so now I've been actively posting across multiple social media channels. I think, again, if you are an accountant, a software engineer, they don't care whether you do or don't. If you're in other areas, particularly in PR or social media or marketing, then very much you probably should. Or if you're working for a company where that's going to be an important piece of it, uh, then it does matter. But again, I wouldn't worry for most of the listeners out there.
0: Let's then chat about your, uh, your book, The Career Toolkit, Essential Skills for Success That No One Taught You. So can you tell the listeners a little bit more about that?
1: The book is based partially on the teaching I've done at MIT. I mentioned earlier these skills that companies were looking for that they couldn't find. The book is broken down into three sections, 10 total chapters. Section one on careers, how to create and execute on a career plan. Chapter two, workplace skills, managing your manager, understanding corporate culture, understanding how you add value, and then interviewing. We talked about some of that. And I look at that both from the candidate's perspective and the hiring manager's perspective. Because unfortunately, most of us will have to be active in hiring, but we get no training for it. The second section, leadership and management. I break down management into both the people aspect of it and the process aspect. And here these skills, these aren't just for people with certain titles. They're not just for senior people. These are leadership and management skills that we can all use from day one right out of college to be more effective in our roles. The third section contains communication negotiation networking and ethics core skills that underpin how we act and relate to other people
0: and most importantly mark where can the listeners buy your book is it is it on your website thecareertoolkitbook.com, or is it can be bought in other shops or online sources
1: all of the above certainly you can go to amazon and buy physical or electronic it's in some bookstores and all bookstores should be able to order you a copy if you want to go and support your local bookstore And there are links on the website to services that can help you go find in your local bookstore or buy online. So you can go to my website, thecareertoolkitbook.com. And not only can you learn more about the book or buy it, you can also download the free app for Android and iPhone. It contains a number of tips from the book and it's designed to help reinforce the lessons. I know when I read books like this, I'm going to forget Right. You you might listen to this podcast and think, Mark said something about how to answer your weakness question. I can't remember what was it he said. So with this app, it will just pop up every day an alert at the time you set, just reminding you one of those tips. So it's going to reinforce what you're getting in the book. You look at the tip, go, yep, great, swipe, done. Or you can open it up, say, right before you go into an interview, as you're riding the train or you're in the car going to the interview, open it up and swipe through those tips to get a quick refresher on it. And then there's a whole page of resources, free downloads, links to free tools all across the internet, and a whole bunch of other books if you want to go further on any of these topics. So all of this can be found at the website, thecareertoolkitbook.com.
0: Well, I want to say thank you so much to Mark Heshpur for chatting today on the Wellbeing forever podcast. As Mark has mentioned, uh, he has a pretty cool website and uh, app, which you can download. We'll put all the links in with the podcast as soon as the podcast is published. So yet again, I just want to say thank you very much to Mark for chatting with me today.
1: Thanks for having me.